Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Trust that you've already encountered some love and some grace in this place as you've interacted with other parts of the body of Jesus. And if you're online, thanks for jumping in and, and being with us in that capacity as well. But there's nothing like gathering with other believers. Amen. Just, you know, I always say there's some things you can't download. Um, you can always get greater music or better teaching, but there's something about being in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God with other believers that is very special. And so it's just great to gather together. Uh, as mature believers, we also realize as we grow in Christ, it's not just about what I get from being with other believers, but it's what I give, right? So it's not just you know, what do I miss by not being a church? It's like, what do others miss by me not being part of the body? Uh, we see that as we work through Hebrews, right? God calls us to, to himself and he's greater than all. Um, and, and it affects how we behave. Uh, you know, why you are here this morning, why you think you are here, why you think you're part of the body affects how you behave in the body. As you connect with others in, in small group Bible study and fellowship, why you believe you're a part of that affects how you behave within that context. Uh, we get a glimpse of that this morning as we continue in, in the book of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, I trust you do. Maybe you've got your uh, ESV journal that we've been working through um, or a full copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning as we continue. Uh, and the point is, it's better right? The point is, it's better. Jesus is greater. He's better. He's superior to all else. And, and uh, as the writer's already made the case at some length about Christ being great, the great high priest, our great high priest, he's greater than Melchizedek. And so he's kind of made this point of being the great high priest. And so you think, well, what else can we talk about with him being the great high priest? Well, what we begin to understand, and really for the next about two and a half chapters, uh, we begin to realize that now he has to drill home, uh, not just that Jesus is better, he is our great high priest, but how does he carry out his duties? What does that look like if Jesus is the great high priest, greater than Melchizedek, greater than everything so far, how does he begin to carry out his duties? And so that's kind of what we get a glimpse as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews kind of begins to unpack. Now, I want you to remember that the writer is admonishing these, these believers. Um, they are Hebrew in blood, but they are Christian in faith. That they've turned away from Judaism, the rituals, uh, the, the commands, the sacrifices. They've, they've entered into a new covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But they grew up on these traditions and, and they, they're, there's this pressure uh, that they're experiencing and feeling, some of them in suffering and difficulty. And it's like, I'm just going back to my old ways. Um, sometimes there, there's, there's teachers we kind of understand in the context that are pulling them away and, and they're, they're battling. And so as the writer is writing to them, he's trying to encourage them. He's admonishing them, keep pursuing, keep growing. 
in some ways, we, we catch the language through the letter, you've stopped growing, you've, you're drifting. And so he's, he's challenging them to keep pressing in, keep pressing on. And so he's reminding them, right, we have Jesus, this great high priest. Now he presses into the duties. What does that look like a little bit more? And so here in chapter 8, he builds on a significant statement that he made. Now, remember, he wrote, the, the writer wrote a letter to the Hebrew believers, he didn't write chapters. He didn't write verses. He wrote a letter. And so all along the way through the letter, he sort of builds on other thoughts. He made a profound statement in chapter 7 um, that if we don't look at it, we, we don't really understand what he's building on right here. And so in, in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 22, we get this simple little statement that begins to link Right? Because what he's doing right now is he begins to link the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest and the need for a new covenant. These two things become linked because if indeed we have this great new high priest that's ushering in this new covenant, he's linking the ministry of Jesus as the great high priest with the new covenant. And so the writer is simply reminding them that when they came to trust Jesus, as the Messiah and turned away from all the old rituals and all the religion and put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the one that had fulfilled all of the messianic prophecies. And, and they were so excited because they placed their trust in Jesus. And so chapter 7, verse 22, we simply get these simple and incredibly profound words. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, of a better covenant. Now, this is the first time we see this word used in the letter, but it's used 21 times in all. So this is the first time. We're going to see it 20 more times throughout the letter. The significance of the covenant. Your translation might say testament, and it really kind of carries with it the idea of a last will and testament, which a last will and testament is only good when someone dies. Who dies? Jesus, because he is our great high priest that establishes a greater covenant and a greater testament. He will build on that. We're, we're going to get to that, but it just makes sense. So here he says, look, this is, Jesus is the guarantor. He is the single guarantee of this greater covenant. And so the Hebrew mindset, just understand, right? He's writing to Hebrews. These people are Jewish by blood. These people have grown up in the traditions of the Jewish culture. Their mindset would immediately have gone back to what? The old covenants. And it would immediately have gone back to Exodus chapter 24 through about 34, which is really a great context. So if you're following along with our small group study guide this week, you can actually pull it. You can fill in your stuff this morning. But this week, building into next week, Exodus 24 through 34, there's some work through stuff that will set up where this writer is taking us. Because these Hebrew believers would have completely gone back to the Mosaic covenant that was established by God to the Jewish people as he pulled them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. 
You remember the story, right? You remember the flannel graph stories? Moses, and he goes up on Mount Sinai, and he's interacting with God, and he gets the stone tablets with all the laws written on it. And then all through Exodus 24, 25, 25, all the way up into 34, he's telling us how you're supposed to build the temple, the, the tabernacle, the portable tabernacle that they're supposed to use. You're going to learn about the tent of meeting and the altar of incense and the table and the holy of holies, and all that stuff is described. That's exactly what these people grew up with. So they understood what this covenant was all about. And that's where their mindset would have gone back to the Mosaic covenant. Now, what we have to understand about Old Testament covenants is this, that the initiator of the covenant was always, uh, always carried the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. So when, when my daughter, my precious daughter, nine years ago or something, asked me to do her wedding, I rewrote what I was doing as a marriage ceremony, and I incorporated the covenant into a marriage ceremony because when we enter into a marriage covenant, it's not a contract, right? Marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so it's not just a contract. Contracts can be easily broken. Contracts are established between two people who don't trust each other. Covenants were different. And so when people in Old Testament times would enter into a covenant, whoever initiated the covenant carried the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. God pulled the people from Egypt. He rescued them, saved them, redeemed them to himself, and he initiated the covenant with the people. So who carried the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant? It was God. So in Exodus 24, we see the, the covenant is confirmed between God and his people through Moses up atop Mount Sinai, and it's carried out through the priests and the prophets. By chapter 34, just 10 chapters later, the covenant is reaffirmed because the people blew it. And that's literally the story of the Old Testament. Here's, here's a quick, quick little snapshot. Judges, again, the, evil people, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And God redeemed them, established a new covenant. Again, the people turned their back on God and walked away. What did God do? He redeemed them. He called them back to himself. Matter of fact, when you pick up your Bible, we have two parts to the, old, to the, to the Bible, right? We have the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is what? The New Covenant. And in between those, there was this 400-year period of silence but that was the whole idea. There's this old covenant, there's this new covenant. But because God is the initiator of the covenant, he carries the greatest responsibility to actually fulfill the covenant. And so in order to do that through Old Testament prophecy, he said, I will establish a new covenant for you. And the writer of Hebrews takes us to that prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, 600 plus years before this letter was written. It was a prophecy about the coming Messiah and about the new covenant that God would establish with his people. So understand this mindset as we move into this chapter, because this is exactly what this Jewish people are thinking. This is their life. This is what, we, we don't look at it quite the same way, but to really understand it, we have to look at it the way the readers would have understood it. So when we, when we think of this, there's, there's a great deal in this chapter that I'm just going to tell you right now, we're not going to get to. Or you should have brought lunch and dinner because we're going to stay here all day. But we're not going to do that. Somebody say amen. We're, we're not going to do that. But I want to pull out four distinctions 
that I see in this text between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Four, four distinctions. The first one that, that you have to see this morning is that there's, the old is all about separation. The new is all about reconciliation. Okay, the old covenant was all about separation. And again, the, the, the readers would have understood, oh yeah, Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai. The clouds covered it. God met with him. He came down. He gave us the tablets. And through the priests and through the prophets, that was instituted. But what was the, what was the covenant? It was law. And, and what's the purpose of law? Law points out my sin. Right? That, that was the purpose of law. The purpose of the law was to help people understand that you are separated from God through this thing called sin. And if you've ever been driving down the road like me and you drive past a speed limit sign, the speed limit says 35, I look down at my speedometer, I'm doing 70. One of us is, is in the wrong. Right? And the judge is going to go, oh yeah, the, the sign wasn't wrong, Dave. You were wrong because the sign simply points out my error. And so that's what God was doing with the people is like, look, I love you and I care for you and I've established a covenant with you and, and you're going to experience my blessing. Pastor Scott talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this greater blessing. You're going to experience the blessing of God or the punishment of God through your actions of obedience and disobedience. You see that all through the Old Testament laws, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can see it laid out. Here's Here's all the blessings. Here's all the cursings. If you're obedient, you enjoy the blessings. If you're disobedient, you enjoy the cursings of God. And so it was all about separation. It was helping them understand that you are not God, but I love you and, and I care for you and I want to provide for you, but you are not me. And, and the law was simply pointing out their sin to them. I don't know about you, but nobody needs to point out my sin. I know enough of my own sin, right? So thank you to all of you who point out my sin on a regular basis, but, but I'm pretty good at pointing out my own. Um, but there's this old separation, the new reconciliation. So with that mindset, let's just take a quick look at chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now the point and what we are saying is this. He just built on this whole point. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, right? He is our great high priest. Uh, and he could say, hey, now to summarize, but he's not because he's drilling home a very specific point. So this is an accurate, uh, actually, translation of what the writer is saying. He said, this is the point. And he kind of summarizes it. And I'll tell you right now, there's a, at least a sermon in verses one and two that we won't get to today. Somebody say amen. We won't get there, but let's just read it. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's significant because he's taken us back to the tabernacle. He addresses that as we move forward through the letter. You'll see it this week if you press into to the book of Exodus. Okay, verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Does Jesus have something to offer? Yeah, he's about to offer himself as the great high priest for this new covenant. Again, we'll build on that over the next few weeks, moving into Easter. Verse four, now if he were on earth, he would uh, not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God. You'll see this again, press back into Exodus this week. You'll see this phrase regularly. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
clear instruction from God. Moses, do exactly like I showed you. Follow my instruction. Man, how often does he say that to me? Dave, just follow my instruction exactly the way I showed you, exactly the way I'm leading you. Just follow my instruction. Verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. Now, anybody thinking Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure right now? Am I, am I the only one when I read this, I go, dude, gnarly, man. What a great, anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I, yeah, I'm not old at all. Um, that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He mediates is better. He is our mediator. We're going to see this later in, in Hebrews. He is our mediator between God and man since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, the word literally is insufficient. It's not that the old covenant was sinful or bad, but it was insufficient to do what Jesus is about to do there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now here he takes the Hebrew listeners back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, he begins to quote this prophecy of this coming new covenant that he was going to enact on behalf of the people. And so he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish. Just get the personal pronouns as we go through. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Man, this is great stuff, guys. See, the covenant, the old covenant pointed people to their sins and their separation from God. And they followed the rituals and they sought as best they could to be obedient through the sacrifices because they wanted to experience the blessings of God. And so under the new covenant, our sacrifice is complete. And that's, that's what the writer's reminding them. Guys, you've walked away from what was old to what was new because the old is now complete. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. You've entered this new covenant with God. It's not about doing things in hopes that God's going to love you because he loved you and he redeemed you when you trusted him. And so under the new covenant, our sacrifice is complete and we are brought together through the blood of Jesus Christ to be reconciled with God. Now, as I was just pressing into this text this week, um, it reminded me of uh, an oven that Leslie and I used to have. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? It's just, welcome to Dave's mind. But we had this oven and it had a control panel that would go out. 
And the control panel went out and I, I was trying to replace the control panel. I was so good, took the thing apart, didn't shock myself, I was, I was really good. And, and I took it apart, found the model number, jumped online, I ordered it. It was delivered to this parts place near us. I went and picked it up and I'm like, this doesn't look right at all. This is like complete, but the part numbers match. And so in contacting the manufacturer, I was introduced to the phrase, well, we don't make that model anymore. And I'm like, so what am I supposed to do? And, and this happened a couple of times with this oven. One time, it was like coming up on Thanksgiving. Guys, just feel the pressure with me for a moment. My wife is like gracious hospitality, loves to serve, loves to care. And, and I'm feeling this pressure of, holy cow, she needs an oven, you know? So... I end up sending this thing off. It was repaired, rebuilt, came back. It worked. Praise God, it went out again. We kind of went ovenless for a while because I'm like, I'm frustrated, you know, and I'm not going to go buy a new one. But this was this journey of this model is not made anymore. It's not good. I can't do anything with it or for it because the model doesn't exist anymore. So therefore, parts or redemption through all that just doesn't work. So the old covenant with all of, its, all of its laws and ordinances doesn't work anymore because this great high priest who is Jesus has ushered in a new model, right, of, of redemption, of covenant. And so I, I wanted to kind of make an illustration with this with my phone. I actually left it over here. Eric, would you help me? Would you just grab my phone that's right there and just, just hand it to me? Because to really understand, you have to understand what was really going on here. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. So this is my phone. Oh, and it really is that heavy. You should carry this thing around in your pocket for a week. It's, it is not fun. Now, this is a phone. Has anyone argued? If, if you're under 30, you probably have never seen one of these in your life. How, now, seriously, how many in the room have never seen something like this before? Seriously, I just want to see your hand. Uh, Mike, seriously, you've never seen one like this? Yeah, so this is, this is a phone, right? And I acquired this, lesson I acquired this years ago, um, and I actually took the thing apart, rewired it, and I had it mounted in our house, and it worked back in the days of landlines. And the only thing that is not functional with this, and I can't, I have to weld this little receiver thing back on. But in the meantime, I manufactured this little hook yesterday. I thought it was pretty good, you know? But it actually kind of works. The idea here, right, is that this, number one, it had to be connected to a landline. So the technology has shifted dramatically from this. Um, but it was pretty cool because I mounted it in our house and we use it. When I pulled it out, I, I'm thinking through the text and I, I thought of this phone that I had sitting in storage and I thought, man, what a good picture. So I pulled it out and I'm dusting it off and cleaning it up and I opened up the little coin thing. I found $2. <laughs> there was $2 in there. And so I told my wife I'd take her to Taco Bell this afternoon. So baby, here we go. We're going all out today. But I had this mounted in my home and you'd, you'd, you'd have to pick up the receiver, you'd listen for the dial tone and you would deposit your, your change, right? Quarters don't go through because there's one hung right there. But 
it would, it would, and then you'd get, you'd dial a number. Now, for those of you who don't understand this high tech world that we live in, you don't push these numbers to make a call. You had to put your finger in this, like 919, right? So I'm gonna call the church, I would have to dial nine and wait, one, nine. And then every now and then it's like, you wouldn't go all the way and it's like, oh man, you'd hang up and you'd have to start all over. Anybody remember that? oh man, I, I didn't go all the way or I dialed the wrong number. You'd have to hang up. You'd have to start all over, right? Nine, one, nine. What's the other number? You know, and it, you, my, my, I still remember. Anybody remember your home childhood number? I still remember my phone number for when I was, I can't tell you my wife's number right now or my kids. I have to look it up, but I still remember my phone as a kid because we had a phone similar to this without the pay component on the wall at home. And it had this long curly Q cord. And when you'd go back and the whole cord would wad up and sometimes you'd just sit because when you're bored, you had nothing else. We didn't have video games and stuff. We'd sit and untangle our phone cord. It's like the 60s were rocking, man. It's like, this is fun. This is the fun life. Now, listen, I got to be honest. I do not have a landline in my phone in my home anymore. Um, the last one we had when, in Arkansas before we moved here the previous number belonged to a BMX, no, to a motocross track. And so we used to get these calls. Hey, you guys racing tonight? Well, <laughs> now the weird thing was my boys raced BMX bikes. So I'm like, matter of fact, we are racing tonight. <laughs> I might see you there. I might not. But the technology has shifted. And I, let me just be honest, because here's where I started wrapping my head around the pressure of these Hebrew believers and this thing really is heavy. If you want to come play with it later, you're welcome. Because you're not going to break it, believe me. Ugh. It weighs less than my Ford. Just, just by a little bit. Um, there have been times in my life, I want to get rid of this. Anybody with me? I am tethered on a leash. Never can get away. And there are, there are times that I will like leave it because I, I need time. I need time with my wife and I, you know, so I, we may just leave it. And when our family, our kids gather, cause we live in different states. And so there are times we go, phone's gone, right? This is our time. And I don't want them texting friends hundreds of miles away or being distracted and, and because we want our time. And, and, but man, you get emails on it, you get calls on it, you get texts on it. And there are times that I would love to go back to the old model. If you want me, call my number. If I'm home, I might answer the phone. If I'm not, eh, try again later, right? Then technology advanced and we came up with these recording machines that would answer your phone if you weren't home. And we'd all come up with clever little jingles for our, for our recorders, right? Dave isn't at home, you know? Um, but there are there's times that I just go, man, I want to go back. And, and I think that was some of the pressure these Hebrews were, were experiencing. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were struggling. And some of them were going, man, if, if I don't do this, if I, I turn back to my old ways. But the writer of Hebrews is continuing to push them to do what? Press on, press on, 
press on, keep growing. Because as you keep growing, right, to embrace the new model, it becomes so much better. It's so much better. There are things I can do with this where I can contact my kids. My wife is easily accessible and I am easily accessible to her where I wouldn't have been before. I can get on and I can see my kids. They live in different time zones from me and I can get on and I can see their face. I, I can't do it with that phone. And so there are things that are better. And so that's, that's a vague, vague perspective. But, but the Hebrews are pressing on and, he, and, and the writer is saying, look, man, you, you've left it behind. You've upgraded to something that is so much better. Why would you want to go back to the old model that did not work? Matter of fact, most of your homes, this would not work. The technology is such it would not work. Why would you want to go back? He's telling these believers that the old covenant is gone. The old was temporary. The new is eternal. The old was earthly. The new is heavenly. And that's why he began to press in extensively to this passage in in Jeremiah chapter 31. His point is to demonstrate from the Old Testament scripture and the prophecies themselves that the covenant under Moses was imperfect and it required replacement by a new covenant that was um, better, greater. The term he uses is faultless. This new covenant is faultless. And in the context that he's using this word, the term faultless is applied exclusively to the new covenant. And it does not imply that the old covenant was in any way sinful. He's simply saying the old covenant was insufficient to do what was necessary. It could not accomplish, through the old covenant, could not accomplish eternal salvation. Uh, the old covenant couldn't bring perfect righteousness. Uh, it was, if it was to be a superior covenant, right? It couldn't be like the Mosaic covenant that was so easily broken over and over and over. That's why when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I am secure because of what he has done, not because of what I do. There's a security, and he speaks of that in in this prophecy. Second thing that we have to see in this text is that the the old is external, the new is internal. See, the old covenant was an external process. It was doing the right things. Now, again, you need to understand this very clearly. The Old Testament covenant People were not saved and redeemed by God because of their obedience or disobedience to the law. They were saved by faith. They were saved by faith. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. They were saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, even though it had not happened yet, because they were believing in God that there was a coming Messiah that was going to redeem them. To walk in obedience and enjoy the blessings of God, they had to follow the statutes and the laws. So there was no salvation in the covenant, the old covenant. They were saved by faith, just as you and I are saved by faith, not looking forward to the Messiah, but looking back to the cross. These believers were, in the Old Testament, this prophecy, they were were saved because they were putting their faith in the coming Messiah. God loved them. He was going to redeem them through the coming Messiah. We look back 2,000 years. 
And we're saved by the same faith in the Messiah. It's just that we, we can look back and see that it's happened. And so salvation is by grace through faith alone, not through the statutes. Okay? The old is external, the new is internal. So in verse 10, I love that he presses into this prophecy from Jeremiah 31. And this is what he says. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. God establishes the covenant. He initiates the covenant. He carries the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. So what does he do? He sends Jesus. After those days, declares the Lord, get this, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Man, I love that. He's taking it from being external, logged on these, these tablets of stone that were carried around, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, carried around in the Ark of the Covenant, these stones that God etched with the law. And he says, I, I'm, I'm doing away with the external because I'm going to write my law in your mind and on your heart. It moved from being an external process to an internal process through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of a believer is to convict us of sin. That's a hard thing, but it's a joyous thing. It's difficult to experience the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, and yet it's an, it's an assuring thing because, because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God to the sin in my life, I realize that I'm a child of God, and He cares and loves me enough to convict me of my sin. It's like, wow, all of a sudden it makes sense because it's gone from being external to internal. But the new covenant, right, it involves this internal transformation by which the laws written on our hearts— and, and as we walk then in submission to God and his will uh, comes a result of faith and love, not fear of judgment. So it, it went from the external to the internal. Now at Southbridge, we use the phrase all the time, we're passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Life change does not come from the external. Life change only comes from the internal. The law could not change people's hearts. It could not transform them. It simply pointed out their sin. And there comes a point with all of us that it's like, look, don't point my sin out anymore. Give me hope. We live in a world that's like, man, we're quick to point out people's sin. Give them hope. The Bible says we are all sinners for everyone falls short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Let's not point out sin. Let's give them hope amidst their sin. By doing what? By connecting people to Jesus for life change. Because when people connect to Jesus, when they enter into personal relationship with God through the blood covenant established through the work of the great high priest Jesus, now we enter into personal relationship and it becomes internal. He gives us what Paul says in Ephesians, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I love this as a deposit guaranteeing all of our future inheritance. When I came to know Christ, it didn't make me perfect, but it made me forgiven. And he placed his spirit in me and he is still, in case you're wondering, he is still doing a transforming work in me. I have not arrived. I will never arrive until I spend eternity with the presence of God. But right now he is in a transforming work. So when we talk about connecting people to Jesus for life change, we'd say that because we know that Christ takes up residence in a believer and through his indwelling spirit, he changes us from the inside out. Now, some of you this morning may be here doing an external work when God invites you to an internal process, and you need to get that right. 
I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're watching online. But if you're here in hopes that God is going to love you more than he does, that's an external process. Which leads us to our next point, because when Christ changes us from the inside out, he changes my motivation from external to internal. Instead of going, man, I have to do this, I go, are you kidding? I get to do this. I don't have to do this. Are you kidding? I want to do this. I want to walk in obedience. I want to go to church. I'm not sure what your motivation was this morning. Some of you and some of you still at home because you're not here, woke up and go, man, it's cold this morning. Anybody else's joints hurt this morning? I went out this morning and it's like, oh man, my knees hurt, my hips hurt, my back hurts. But I'm going, I get to go to church. I get to gather with other believers. I want to be there. I don't have to. Believe me, there's nothing in Scripture that says in order to, to be loved by God and be a Christian, I have to go to church. You can go to church and not be a Christian. But you can't be a Christian and not go to church because God changes our wanter. He changes our desire. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a Big Mac right? That's the reality of the fact that it's not about the external, it's about the internal. Because I am saved, God changes my attitude. He changes my motivation from I have to, to I get to. He changes it from I have to do this to I want to do this. I desire to walk in obedience to God's commands. I desire to grow to spiritual maturity and learn to serve other people. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Because God invites me to his mission and I get to participate. Does that just crank anybody else up besides me? I get to participate. I want to participate in the mission of Christ. I don't have to, but I believe if the Spirit of God takes up residence in in, in me and truly transforms me, Pastor Scott says it all the time, right? Spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. I don't go out in the community going, man, I have to share Jesus. I don't have to. I get to. I don't have to. I want to. I don't have to invest in other people. I want to. And so he moves us then from the old is external, the new is internal, to the old is religion, the new is relationship. And I love this. In verse 10, we got to jump back to verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them onto their hearts. Get this. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. When they think back, when these Hebrew uh, listeners and readers would have picked this up, they would have understand, again, the historical evidence and, and tradition. They, they would have understood what Moses understood. Because God gave the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances uh, to the people of Israel from a place of remote distance. They were at the base of the Mount of, of Sinai. While Moses and Joshua went up, and some other leaders. Then Moses said, you guys wait here because I have to go up. And he ascended further up into the mountain. And the the cloud, the scripture says the cloud came and it covered the mountain. And Moses encountered God. This is is the gate that, that God is opening to the people, right? 
and on, the, on, the, on Mount Sinai through Moses on these tablets of stone and from the lips of priests and prophets, God would carry out this covenant with his people. But now he's saying, no, 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 all that's going to go away. All right, as a whole, as a nation, the people did not enjoy a close father-child type of relationship with God because of their constant disobedience with the old covenant system. In other words, it could not do what it needed to do. The new covenant completely changed that because there was a contrast. The old covenant involves, uh, or the new covenant involves this new relationship of intimacy, of fellowship, of mutuality, more similar to what Moses experienced with God. Matter of fact, I love it in, in Exodus chapter 33. And again, if you're pressing into this passage this week, you're going to love seeing this. Because in 33, when he's talking about the tent of meeting, he talks, he's, he's writing down and as Moses is making his way toward this area, the people stand and they, and they just point that way. And then it says he gets there and, and to the tent of meeting and he's about to meet with God and all the people are standing just in allegiance and, and in reverence. And, and, and they stand and stand into the entrance of the tent. All the people would rise up and worship at each at his tent door. Verse 11 of, of Exodus 33, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, get this face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is the new covenant that these believers were beginning to experience. And the Hebrews, uh, the writer is simply saying, he's reminding them, God is inviting you from religion to intimacy of relationship. You get to speak with God face to face. This is, this is why that, that tent of meeting as is, is Moses is going, here's the significance, right? Easter's coming. And when Jesus dies on that cross, what happens? There's several things that take place physically. One of the things that's documented throughout human history is that when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished. What? The covenant. It's finished. The blood of the sacrifice lamb. You're going to see it later in Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness and redemption through the new covenant is done when Jesus dies on the cross. What happens at that moment? The very thing we're going to study next week, the tent, the tabernacle, that holy of holies, that, that veil, that curtain that separates the, the outer court from the inner court, the holy place, into a deeper place. There's a veil that goes into the holy of holies where once a year the high priest would go. What happened? When Jesus died, it says from top to bottom, the, the curtain, the veil was torn. Why? Because Jesus is now inviting us to a face-to-face -face relationship. And that's what these believers entered into. And he's saying, don't go back to the old stuff. Do you remember this face-to-face -face intimacy that God has invited you to? It's not religion, it's relationship. Man, what a beautiful picture of God's goodness and his mercy and his glory. But there's one last thing I want to share with you. Verse 13 simply tells us that the old is obsolete, but the new is absolute. It is forever. It's eternal. Look at verse 13. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, though the priesthood and the sacrificial system were still in operation, that's what, that was the draw to these Hebrew believers. It was still taking place. The, the temple was still there, and there was this draw, and there was this lure, and there was these false teachers that were luring people away. Some of you are being lured by false teaching. And instead of pressing closer to Jesus in relationship, you're looking for religion. 
You're, you're trying to do something external that God meant to be internal. And I'm saying, don't go back to the old method. There's something greater. There's something better through our great high priest whose name is Jesus. But this sacrificial system was still in place. And they were being lured. They were being drawn to it. And it was ready. He says it's ready to disappear. It was almost a prophetic word because we know in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And it was gone. And, and all that just vanished like overnight. The Roman army destroyed the temple and it put an end to, the, to all of its sacrifices during the Jewish revolt. So, so we know that that was, was gone. And so there's this good news, bad news scenario that he lays out because the good news of the superior new covenant stands in stark contrast to the bad news of our old sinfulness revealed by the old covenant. So he's like, so what are we supposed to do with that? Right? The old is obsolete. The new is absolute. The bad news is that every one of us has made a mess of our lives and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's every one of us. None of us are exempt. The Bible says, for all have sinned. And that Greek word's a really fancy word for all. It simply means all. It means all y'all, right? All y'all. Every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. And the law functioned as, a man, as sort of a mirror, if you would, uh, to reveal our sin, but it can only condemn us. When the law points out my sin, all it does is condemn me. It can't bring healing. It can't bring forgiveness. It can't bring cleansing. Only Jesus, the mediator of this better covenant, can take away the stains of my sin that are revealed by the law. That's what Jesus invites us to. So I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're still operating on this old model Maybe you're here or you're watching online thinking somehow I'm going to do this and man, I hope God loves me more or I feel like I have to do this. I'm, I'm just telling you this morning, you're operating out of an old system and that old system is gone. It's obsolete. The only way to a right relationship with God is through the person of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our mediator, the, the one between a sinful God and and, and a holy God and a sinful man, this person of Jesus. And here's the other thing as we close that these readers would have really understood because when they came to put their trust in Jesus and turn away from the old system, what they realized is that Jesus was the Messiah. And they would have clearly remembered the words that Jesus spoke Right before he was arrested, Luke chapter 22 records these words for us because this was the feast of the Passover. They were the Passover, the Jewish people still celebrate to this day. And the Passover was simply a celebration of God pulling them from bondage and slavery in Egypt through the blood put over the doorpost that the, that the angel of death would pass over them and save them. And so God redeemed them. And the Jewish people to this day still celebrate the feast of the Passover. So right before Jesus was arrested, Luke chapter 22, he's meeting with his disciples in an upper room and he's celebrating the Passover. It was the time of the Passover feast. And as he met with them, they, they enjoyed the Passover together. Luke chapter 22 records that for us as Luke is writing. And in verse 19, he said, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
what? What? That's not how we've ever done the Passover before. But then he went on in, in verse 20, and likewise the cup, get this, after they had eaten. But why does he say that? Because in the feast of the Passover, there's four specific cups that they, that they partake of all through the meal. This is not like the way we do Lord's Supper. This is a meal. It's, it's a hangout time. They're enjoying time around the table. After supper came the fourth cup, what was called the cup of redemption. Interestingly enough, that the scripture tells us that after supper, he took the cup. That was the fourth cup in the, in the Passover feast. It was called the cup of redemption. And as Jesus picked up that fourth cup, and he said, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, Luke chapter 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Hebrew people would have known that. His disciples would have known that. And as Jesus held that cup of redemption, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was establishing a new covenant. So when he died on the cross and he said, it is finished, what was finished? The work of redemption through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that you and I can be forgiven of our sin. No more sacrifice, no old covenant, no more religion. Now he enters into a relationship with us. And his desire in that relationship is to make us new because God's all about doing new stuff. So it makes sense, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Christ wants to make all things new. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As we close, I simply want to ask you this question. What's new in your life? What's new? What is God doing in your life that's new? I'm not asking what he did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, or last week. What does he want to do new in your life right now? Because he is always at work. He's always pursuing us. He's always taking our old junk and making it new. I don't know about you, I still got junk that I carry and God is always making something new. If I'm willing to give it to him, he's willing to make it new. What is he making new in your life? And maybe this morning you're sitting in this place and you're still kind of operating under an old system. And maybe this morning you need to begin new and afresh and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. To let him begin to make you new. Quit trying all the old stuff and, and press into Christ and allow him to make something new for you. Maybe there's some hurt. Maybe there's some struggles. Maybe there's things that you've been holding on to and you need to just relinquish that and give that over to Christ and let him make you new. I'm going to ask you just throughout the room, bow your heads, close your eyes in an attitude of prayer. And, and I simply want you to ask the Lord for a moment, God, what do you want to do in my life? How do you want to make me new? What do you desire to do in my life that I'm probably unwilling to allow you to do that? Lord, what do you want to do? Make me new. If there's a hurt, if there's a struggle, maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to reach out and contact us. How can we love you? How can we care for you? But in this room, are you just willing to allow God to make you new? Through the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he desires to work in you. Would you allow him to do that this morning? Father, work in our hearts and lives in a unique way. In Jesus' name, amen.